Hey, some exciting news and just a quick note before we begin. We were recently nominated for a podcast award. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you vote for us in the 14th Annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. The voting process is pretty simple. You visit www.podcastawards.com and click the blue button that says Nominations Now Open. You'll need to create a quick account, but once in, select History of the Marine Corps from the drop-down menu on two locations. The first is the Adam Curry People's Choice Award. It's at the top left-hand corner. And the second drop-down is in Society and Culture, on the right side towards the bottom. Once you have those two selected, just hit Save Nomination. That's it. We really appreciate your help with this. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 16 of History of the Marine Corps, The Marines Help Out General Washington, Part 3. Last week, we covered General Washington and his complications against the British Army in New Jersey. He would have success at the Battle of Trenton. However, a couple of his generals were not able to cross the river as planned due to the buildup of ice. We also briefly discussed the Continental Navy, specifically the Randolph. Just before fleeing to Baltimore, Congress issued a $10,000 bounty to the Randolph if they successfully defend the city of Philadelphia. However, the Randolph wouldn't get far from port. This week, we focus on Cadwallader, the Marines attached to his command, and the additional challenges they would face such as muddy trails, cold weather, and the lack of food. We'll also discuss the Battle of Assunpink Creek. As one soldier described, the bridge looked red as blood with their killed and wounded and their red coats. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. On December 26th, the day after the attack, Washington was back in his office in Philadelphia when he received a letter from General Cadwallader explaining the circumstances of why he didn't cross the Delaware. I posted a link to his letter on historyofthemarinecorps.com, but it states that he was not able to pass due to the ice on the river and it would have been impossible to cross without risking his field pieces. General Washington was still victorious at Trenton and Cadwallader was not held to be responsible for failing to show up for the engagement at Trenton. At the time the letter was sent, Washington was already in Philadelphia, but Cadwallader didn't know that. In his letter, he stated that he would cross the river the following morning to meet up with him and his men. Washington quickly sent a letter to Cadwallader, explaining that he and his troops are back in Philadelphia and to hold off making any operational decisions until they hear back from him. Unfortunately, Cadwallader did not receive the message in time and he and his man crossed the river the morning of December 27th. The majority of Cadwallader's forces managed to cross the river by 1300 the same day. The last of his men to cross the Delaware was Colonel Hitchcock and his regiment. When Hitchcock was about to board one of the last vessels, a messenger showed up with Washington's letter. Hitchcock read the letter and decided to stay on the Pennsylvania side of the river with his men. Hitchcock then sent a letter to Cadwallader, explaining the current situation. Once Cadwallader received the message, he quickly called a meeting with his officers to discuss the situation and come up with a plan on how to proceed. 
There was a lot of debate between the officers. Moving men and equipment across an icy river was a substantial challenge. Crossing back to Philadelphia will waste resources and possibly risk equipment and lives. Cadwalder and his men decided that they would stay put in New Jersey until they heard back from Washington on how he would like to proceed. However, this decision didn't last too long and Cadwalder and his men started to consider alternative options. Multiple options were presented. A few of his men thought they should head to Mount Holly and confront the Hessians there. Some wanted to advance to Bordentown, which they thought was not adequately manned and would be an easy victory. After much discussion, Cadwalder and his men decided to take his forces in New Jersey and march towards Burlington. They left that same day and arrived in Burlington around 2100 on the 27th. They were expecting to find some resistance, but when they arrived, they discovered that the enemy was no longer there. Cadwalder and his men rested in Burlington, but sent Colonel Joseph Reed and his men to scout ahead. Colonel Reed sent a messenger back to Cadwalder, stating that the route to Bordentown was not occupied by enemy forces, and it was clear for Cadwalder and his men to proceed. Cadwalder organized his men and marched to Bordentown at 0400 on December 28th. During his march, he came across supplies the Hessians left behind. These supplies were useful, but it was the middle of winter and what he really needed was food. He was hoping to find some food to feed his troops, but the Hessians didn't leave any when they retreated. He gathered anything of value and made a detour to Crosswicks, which was about four miles northeast of their current location. Once in Crosswicks, Cadwallader was able to purchase food for his men. Back in Philadelphia, General Washington was planning on recrossing the Delaware, but before he did, he needed more troops. The day before joining Cadwallader's troops, Washington's recruiters spent the day enlisting as many men as possible for the upcoming engagement with British forces. If you listened to last week's episode, you might remember Congress leaving for Baltimore when Howe's troops lined the Delaware and the HMS Roebuck anchored in the bay. Before they left, they voted to give Washington authority of many of their responsibilities, and it was fortunate for Washington that they did. Most of his men's enlistment contracts were expiring on December 31st, and Washington authorized a $10 bounty to any man who decided to stay another six weeks. Washington visited each of his Continental regiments and discussed the extension offer with his men, but only around 1,500 of his 2,400 workforce took him up on his deal. Without much of an option, Washington led what was left of his army back across the Delaware on December 29th. Cadwalder was chomping at the bits, and he wanted to advance on Allentown. The majority of his officers disagreed with him. They haven't heard from Washington yet and they were concerned that many good men would needlessly die due to their exhaustion. Cadwalder chose not to listen to his officers and sent an advance party to Allentown on the night of December 28th to collect intelligence, while he and his remaining men would stay in Crosswicks and gather food and supplies. Cadwalder continued to send small patrols for the next three days. One of the scouting missions consisted of Major Samuel Nicholas and his Marines. While the Marines were patrolling, they captured a British sympathizer who informed Nicholas of the motives of Colonel John Lawrence, who was a former sheriff of Monmouth. Lawrence was a Tory, an American colonist who supported the British. 
and he was recruiting men at the local courthouse. The captured British sympathizer claimed Lawrence had recruited 70 men and sent 20 Americans to prison for refusing to join his cause. Nicholas dispatched a message to Cadwalder requesting to attack Lawrence and his men. Washington stated that he thought attacking Lawrence and his sympathizers would help with suppressing further rebellions, but ultimately left the decision up to Cadwalder. Cadwalder would refuse Nicholas's request, stating that this wasn't their current mission. It was December 31st, and Washington was desperately trying to convince his men to take the $10 bounty and stay an additional six weeks. Washington spoke to every regiment and stated, My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do, and more, than could be reasonably expected, but your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay only one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably never can do under any other circumstances. Washington's efforts were not fruitless, and on January 1, 1777, he had managed to assemble 3,335 men. Washington had his men, and his focus now changed to operations. Washington assembled a council of war on the night of January 1st. The council agreed that Cadwalder should return from Crosswicks and head to Trenton. They also recalled General Thomas Mifflin's troops from Bordentown. Once the two regiments returned to Trenton, all three forces would move towards Princeton to confront the British. However, the British were not patiently waiting for the Americans to attack. During the same time Washington and his men were planning in advance, the British were marching 8,000 men from the 4th Brigade, Dragoons, and Hessian Grenadiers out of Brunswick and into Princeton and right behind them was the main British force. It took them six hours to reach Princeton. That night, Major General Cornwallis arrived in Princeton as well, and he immediately met with his officers. During that meeting, he declared that they would march to Trenton in the morning to confront the Americans. With the exception of Major General Grant's 4th Brigade and 16th Dragoons who stayed behind to defend Princeton, Cornwallis advanced towards Trenton, Cadwalder and his men started on their march for Trenton at 0100 on January 2nd. For those of you who live in the Northeast, you understand the weather in the middle of winter is usually pretty wet and cold. It was no different for Cadwalder and his men, and most of their march took place on roads that were muddy. This slowed down their arrival, but by the time the sun was up, most of Cadwalder's troops arrived in Trenton. However, they didn't have much time to relax. They ate a quick meal, and soon after, the call to arms was sounded. American forces assembled and started to position themselves on the southern bank of the Assunpink Creek. A couple of miles up the creek was General Mercer and his brigade. General Cadwalder was south of him, in an open field about a mile from town. To the east of the Assunpink Bridge was General St. Clair and his men positioned on the high ground. Major General Cornwallis began his march from Princeton around 0800 on January 2nd. He organized three columns and arrived at Shabakunk Creek shortly after noon. They were welcomed by Colonel Edward Han, who was specifically sent to challenge the advancing British. 
Colonel Han and his men fought for three hours but were ultimately forced to retreat. They headed for an area north of Trenton, where they organized fighting positions previous to the battle. Colonel Han continued to hold off the British for another hour north of Trenton, but Colonel Han would eventually concede to the British to avoid being outflanked. To compensate for Colonel Han's retreat, General Washington ordered Colonel Hitchcock to cross the Assunpink Bridge and meet the British. Hitchcock would face heavy resistance from the British. His men were met head-on by the Hessian Grenadiers and on the right flank by British light infantry. Overwhelmed by the attack, Hitchcock's men would break ranks and retreat back to the Assunpink Bridge. Washington watched as the British light infantry advanced towards the creek below the bridge. He ordered Hitchcock's men to regroup and stop the British, but while they were reassembling, American artillery launched a barrage of shells at the British. This forced the advancing light infantry to reconsider their attack. They were forced back and sent the Hessian grenadiers in their place. The Assunpink Bridge was one of the few places to cross the creek, and fortifying it was crucial to prevent the British from reaching Philadelphia. To stop the grenadiers from taking the bridge, Major Nicholas and his Marines were amongst the troops ordered to force back the Hessians. The Hessians came forward with courage, and advanced on the bridge even though every American in range was firing at them. They were about halfway across the bridge before they retreated. The Assunpink Bridge would be coated in blood from the 31 killed and injured Hessians. The Americans were able to push the Hessians back and secure the bridge. A third attack was attempted by the British, and they sent a group of infantry to try and take the bridge again. Artillery was ready for them, and Knox's men fired 18 or 19 pieces at the approaching enemy. A Sergeant White stated, The enemy came in solid columns. We let them come on some ways. Then by a signal given, we all fired together. The enemy retreated off the bridge and formed again, and we were ready for them. Our whole artillery was again discharged at them. The American infantry concentrated their fire on the incoming British troops. Despite the artillery barrage and concentrated infantry fire, the British still continued to advance. An American soldier stated, They continued to advance, though their speed was diminished, and as the column reached the bridge, it moved slower and slower until the head of it was gradually pressed nearly over when our fire became so destructive that they broke their ranks and fled. But the British were still not done. On the other side of the bridge, they reformed ranks and continued the attack. Another American soldier wrote, And again they rushed the bridge, and again was a shower of bullets pushed upon them with the redoubled fury. This time, the column broke before it reached the center of the bridge, and their retreat was again followed by a hearty shout from our line. This was a huge accomplishment by the Americans, and every time they successfully pushed back the British, they celebrated with cheers. An account from a soldier fighting at the battle stated, It was then that our army raised the shout, and such a shout I never since heard. By what signal or word of command I know not. The line was more than a mile in length, and from the nature of the ground, the extremes are not inside of each other, yet they shouted as one man. Both sides continued to attack each other via artillery until it started to get dark. Neither side slept well that night. Both were anticipating an attack and positioned men to guard their camp. At the British camp, 
Major General Cornwallis planned to launch an attack on Phillips Ford in the morning. The Americans were making plans as well, and General Washington assembled the Council of War to discuss how to proceed. The main topic the Council of War would discuss is if they should continue to fight at Trenton, or if they should withdraw to the south. This was not an easy decision, and there were strong arguments on both sides. After a lot of debating, someone brought up a third option. The majority of British forces were at Trenton, which meant Princeton should have a light guard force protecting British supplies. This was an attractive approach. Advancing on Princeton would replenish supplies for the Americans, and it wouldn't look like the Americans were retreating. This was the most popular way forward, and the Council of War immediately started to plan for this attack. General Washington would attack Princeton, and if successful, would resupply and move towards Brunswick. General Washington ordered the guard force doubled, and advance parties sent to dig an entrenchment across the road near Henry's Mill. He also ordered his men to load the campfires with fence rails and to keep them burning until morning. Around 0100, the men were segregated into detachments and quietly headed towards Princeton. The Americans had to stay off roads to avoid being spotted. They traveled through the woods, running parallel to Murdy Run. Halfway through their trip, someone shouted that they were surrounded by the Hessians. Many men from Mifflin's militia fled and headed towards Bordentown, but it turned out there weren't any Hessians in the area. The remaining army proceeded towards Princeton. General Washington and his men marched until morning, where he would halt his formation in an open field near Princeton. Washington split his men into two columns. General Greene commanded one column, which included Mercer, Cadwallader, and Samuel Nicholas with his Marines. They received orders to follow Quaker Road and secure the bridge on the main road to Trenton. Major General John Sullivan commanded the second column and had the mission of traveling Sawmill Road where he would enter Princeton to the east. Unbeknownst to Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mawood of the British Army, Washington and his 6,000 men stood three miles from Princeton preparing for an attack. Mawood and his 700 men were headed to Trenton that day. His 700 men consisted of the 17th and 55th Regiments of Foot and one troop of the 16th Dragoons. The 40th Regiment was also attached to Mawood, but they stayed behind and fortified Princeton. As Mawood and his men crossed Stony Creek, they saw a group of armed men coming out of the woods to the south. Mawood assumed these were American soldiers retreating from Cornwallis' attack, so he sent mounted dragoons to investigate. He sent the 17th Regiment across the bridge to an orchard on the high ground, above the stream. The 55th Regiment was sent back to Princeton. Mercer saw Mawood's men and thought they were a scouting team patrolling the area. He sent his men towards the hill, where the 17th Regiment was patiently waiting. As soon as Mercer's men reached the top of the hill, they were welcomed with shots fired from the British. The first shots by the British passed over the Americans' heads, cutting the limbs off the trees above. The 17th Regiment retreated and formed a new line of battle. The Americans fired a volley at the 17th Regiment, but did very little damage. The British responded by charging at the Americans with bayonets. Mercer and his men were overwhelmed by this attack, and many men were killed, including General Mercer. The residual troops ran off to escape the British. General Cadwalder heard the commotion and immediately headed towards the hill. 
Once he reached the high ground, he saw Mercer's men retreating. He quickly ordered his men to form into divisions. Morgan would take a battalion and approach the British's left flank, while Matlack's riflemen and Major Nicholas and his marines take the right flank. He ordered his men to move towards the British and fire at will. Firing was premature, and the first shots by the Americans were too far to be effective. To compensate for the early volley, Cadwallader ordered his men to double up and reload as they marched. Unfortunately, his men were 50 yards from the 17th Regiment and didn't have time to reload. The British launched multiple destructive volleys, which killed and injured many Americans. Cadwallader was pushed back 40 yards and left behind one field piece. Now around 100 yards from the enemy, Cadwallader unsuccessfully tried to get his men back into formation. General Washington was now at the scene and attempted to get his men back in formation as well. He also had no luck. Only with the support of Captain Joseph Mulder's two-gun battery continuing to fire on the British and Sullivan's division reinforcing Cadwallader's men were the Americans able to reorganize. They were ordered to advance on the British. Colonel Han and his men took Mahood's left flank while Cadwallader and his men headed down the center. Eventually, the 17th Regiment would retreat and American forces would continue to attack the retreating British until the men disseminated. Mahood headed towards the fortified regiments in Princeton, but they were forced to retreat as well. Part of the 55th Regiment tried to advance on the Americans, but they were welcomed by Sullivan's troops, which sent them back as well. General Washington and his men advanced on Princeton, and the remaining British troops retreated to prepared positions around Nassau Hill. Realizing they didn't have a chance, British forces surrendered to the Americans. When the dust settled, the British lost around 500 men, a hundred of which were left dead in the field. Americans had about six or seven officers and around 25 to 30 privates killed. Amongst the men killed was one Marine from Philadelphia, Captain William Shippen. General Washington initially planned on advancing on Brunswick after conquering Princeton but his men have been marching and fighting for two days straight. Instead of continuing to Brunswick, which was another 17 miles away, General Washington rested his men along the Millstone River. While his troops were resting, he summoned his officers so they could come up with a strategy on what to do next. Similar to their conversation at Trenton, his officers were split on the appropriate next steps. Some wanted to immediately advance to Brunswick and launch an attack while others argued that marching exhausted men another 17 miles without a plan would be devastating. Meanwhile, back at the Assunpink Bridge, the sun was rising and Cornwallis soon realized that the Americans deserted their sight. He quickly ordered his men to head towards Princeton. With Cornwallis on his way, Washington decided to ditch Brunswick and head towards a pre-established army base in Morristown. This would be a challenging march. Troops were exhausted, and many didn't have anything to eat and little to drink for more than two days. Americans had to halt the march and wait for the thousand men who were not able to keep up with the formation due to extreme fatigue and hunger. A command decision was made to rest the men at Pluckyman for two days before heading to Morristown. This would allow the men to rest and prepare for any confrontations with the British. On January 6th, the march continued to Morristown with well-rested Americans. 
Morristown was a great defensive position. It sat on a high plateau, and the east was blocked by the Wachung Mountains, which were extremely difficult to traverse. It was also a great launching point, since it was right in the middle of Amboy, Brunswick, and Newark. Once the Americans arrived in Morristown, the Marines were separated from Cadwalder's army and sent to Sweettown, which was about two miles away. Major Nicholas lost a lot of men due to battle, desertion, transfer to other army units, or who just died during the rout. With almost a 40% decrease in men, Major Nicholas lost 51 Marines and now has a force of 80 men. The Marines were also having a difficult time finding food. Food prices were inflated and Marines did not have enough money to cover 80 men. Nicholas requested more money to help with the inflated prices, and on January 11th, Cadwalder provided Nicholas and his Marines 10 pounds to help with procuring food, which did little to help the situation. To top it off, Marines also lacked a sufficient supply of clothing. No one expected this campaign to last this long, and Marines weren't prepared for the long voyage coupled with the cold winter. Five days after Marines received their additional 10-pound food allowance, Cadwalder sent 21 pairs of shoes and mittens for the Marines. And three days later, he would send 28 more pairs of both. While Nicholas and his three companies of Marines were dealing with the cold and lack of supplies, the fourth company, on board the Randolph, was having their own issues. The cold weather and strong winds made service on board the Randolph miserable. What made things worse was that the ship never left Fort Island. Marines were getting impatient, and the idleness caused many men to desert. Seven men deserted their posts on the Randolph, and Captain Biddle offered a reward of five pounds each, or 35 pounds for all seven. I'm not sure who did the math on that, but it doesn't really seem like an incentive. Fortunately, the end of January was warmer than usual, and the ice in the river began to melt. Robert Morris took advantage of the weather, and he ordered the Randolph, the Hornet, and the Fly to sea to escort merchantmen. Once they completed their escort, they were to then head to the Virginia Capes to capture additional enemy ships. The Randolph was the first of the 13 frigates to begin its service at sea, and left Fort Island on February 3rd. With the Randolph headed to the Virginia Capes, Samuel Nicholas and his Marines were assigned to General Henry Knox's artillery regiment. However, Captain Mullen's company would not stay long, and on February 20th, 19 days after their assignment under General Knox, they were given orders to escort 25 British prisoners safely to Philadelphia. Once there, Captain Mullen and his Marines would wait for additional instructions. When the Marines arrived in Philadelphia, Captain Mullen rented the home of Abraham Wilt to lodge his company of Marines. Wilt's home was on the east side of 2nd Street, between Mulberry and Sassafras Streets. It turns out the Marines weren't the best guests and ended up trashing Wilt's house. Peter Isaias, the deputy barracks master, states that the Marines left the yard around the property a mess. They burnt the stairs down in the kitchen, they burnt the dresser and mantle, and they left a pile of human crap, a yard long that trailed towards the door. Mullen never ordered his men to return the house the way they found it, and his company had to reimburse Wilt for all damages caused by the Marines. In early April, Captain Mullen would receive orders on board the Delaware. However, there isn't a lot of documentation that shows what happened to his company. 
There were a few Marines appointed on board the Delaware as well, but the remaining company seemed to have disappeared. My guess, and it's only a guess, is that the Marines were transferred to other Army detachments that were short-staffed. The remaining two companies of Marines were still assigned to Knox's artillery, and in the middle of March, Captains Isaac Craig and Andrew Porter re-enlisted as artillery. Craig was attached to the Pennsylvania Artillery Regiment and Porter with the Continental Artillery under Knox. Unfortunately for Samuel Nicholas, all three of his companies were incorporated into the Continental Army, and now Congress's idea of an independent Marine Corps would no longer come to fruition. Marines would serve as small detachments on board ships, but Samuel Nicholas would no longer function as the head of Marines and would be considered a high-ranking officer without an assignment. The remaining few Marines would board naval vessels and prepare to once again confront the British at sea. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss some encounters the new American frigates would face. We'll also take a look at Marines on board these new frigates and some of their actions. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.